You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And on today's podcast, we are going to bring you part two of my interview with author John Bell, who wrote the book Oak Island Illustrated, The 225-Year Search for Truth and Treasure. On the last podcast, we talked about kind of how his path as a historian and author led to Oak Island. He is a Nova Scotia native and some of his background with the Oak Island mystery. And today we're going to focus a little bit more of the conversation on theories as the focus of his book really is kind of touching on different theories. Um, speaking of the book, I want to congratulate Marilee, the patron who won a copy of the book. Marilee, I will get you that copy out this week. So stay tuned for that. Um, if you think this show is worth five bucks a month, you can become a Patreon. Go to uh, patreon.com slash island to learn more. And before we get to the interview, just want to remind you to uh, rate and review us on iTunes. And, uh, you know, you can always email me, island at gmail.com, all that kind of stuff. Going to dispense with the... Uh, What's the what's the phrase with the with the shameless plugs and just get right to this interview. So without further ado, let's head to the beach for a bit and then be back with John Bell, the author of Oak Island Illustrated, the 225 year search for truth and treasure. All right, so let's talk about theories. Right in the beginning of your book, um, you write this, uh, and, I, and I love the way you write Resulting theories have been shaped by three main factors, tangible discoveries on the island, local tradition and history, and trends in pop culture. And I want to focus to begin with on the trends in pop culture part of it, because I feel like, you know, as you mentioned already, the, the trend in pop culture throughout the 18th century was, or the 19th century, was this love affair with pirates, specifically Captain Kidd, which is yeah. what sort of fueled this for many, many years. And now it seems like the trend is in pop culture to the Knights Templar. So yeah. once again, this uh, pop culture is rearing its ugly head in 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 the science and in the actual history and archaeology of Oak Island. And it seems to me from what you're saying here that that's always been the case, correct? Yes. I wonder what you make of um, things like the early examples of this phenomenon, like the pirates. And I think you mentioned the Vikings as well. Uh, how do I, how do I ask this question? Um <laughs> You divide it into you divide the theories basically into two camps: terra firma and terra incognita. Basically, solid ground and kind of shaking ground. Yeah. And in the solid ground, you put two of these things that we're talking about: pirates and Vikings, um, as possible uh, good explanations for what we're seeing. But in your um, in your discussion of terra firma here as opposed to yeah. terra incognita you include the vikings and you include the pirates but when it comes to the vikings it sounds like in a lot of these terra firma theories what you're doing is you're not 
posturing a treasure theory, you're posturing an example of or presenting a possibility of what might explain some of these things uh, beyond treasure, right? Like that we don't right. doesn't necessarily mean treasure. So explain to me a, a little bit more again about the terra firma, how you put things into the terra firma <laughs> category. Right. Okay. And sometimes the terra firma isn't all that firma. <laughs> Um, but what I thought I would do there is look at our, uh, the known history of exploration and contact in Nova Scotian history. So we know that the Norse were likely here. We know that there were pirates active in these waters. We know for certain that the, uh, you know, the, the, the French and the British were very active in Nova Scotia and contending for control of Nova Scotia and, and Mi'kmaq and, and Acadia. Um, we also know, and we, we can get to this, uh, but we know that it's possible that the Spanish, that there could have been Spanish vessels that were driven northward in storms as those treasure fleets were crossing the Atlantic from Cape Hatteras uh, over to, uh, to uh, Europe. Um, so they're all, they're all rooted at least to some degree in Nova Scotia history. So that's why I refer to them as terra firma. It doesn't mean some are more likely than others. That's for certain. <laughs> The Norse are not terribly likely, but we know they were here. And there have been a few theories that have developed around uh, the Norse presence. But I don't think these theories are particularly popular or, uh, you know, I think by hardcore Oak Island people, they really aren't uh, taken uh, very seriously. Because Norse culture and Vikings were a thing with Nova Scotia in particular, right? I mean, Nova Scotia has sort of a, a history of really jumping on this whole the yeah. Vikings came here earlier thing, right? I mean, that's a... Definitely. That's, yeah. And kind of the same was happening at the same time. This, You know, once the sagas are translated into uh, English and people become aware of this these these narratives describing contact with the indigenous people and and visiting what would appear to be the northeastern north uh, you know uh, North American uh, coastline uh, then you've got people scrambling in uh, New England and Nova Scotia elsewhere in the Maritimes elsewhere in America trying to find Evidence, you know, the search is underway for uh, artifacts and runic stones and strange inscriptions or inscriptions that were known in the community for some time, but no one knew what to make of them. But once the sagas are translated and and more and there's more and more attention being paid to the possibility of a Norse presence here, then. Uh, People go, oh, there that stone that you know with the weird marks on it. That must be a Norse stone. Those must be right. Norse runes. And now they must be Templar. 
Right. Right. You find those things for a while. It was it has to be Viking. Now it has to be some sort of Templar something. Yeah. I'm not really even sure what. So you mentioned the Spanish a few times and you give a lot of um, a, a, you, some beautiful stuff in the book, some great pictures of Spanish galleons and some yes. wonderful stuff of the battles and things about Francis Drake and the Spanish coins and stuff. And the Spanish are yeah. a very popular theory among treasure hunters. I know Dan Blankenship was a was a big proponent of that. I think Darcy O'Connor might have been as well. Um, so talk a little bit about the Spanish and the possibility of the Spanish involvement in this. You, I guess the question that I think I'm going to keep going back to is one of the things we never really discuss on the show, which I think is maybe the biggest crime that they commit in presenting the history, is we never really discuss on the show what historians know this area of the world was right before right. British colonialism. So you already mentioned a few times about Basque fishermen, um, and you already hinted about the possibility of the Spanish being blown north. Uh, it does sound like w- there's probably a lot of history lost in Nova Scotia uh, with the Spanish in regards to the Spanish. Am I am I reading that correctly? Yeah, I mean, there's no evidence that there was um, long-term, ongoing contact. But we, you know, the, what makes the, the Spanish kind of irresistible is if you do see uh, Oak Island as a, uh, a treasure hunt, then if it does involve treasure, you can't ignore the Spanish. Uh, the, you know, they removed huge quantities of gold and silver from the Americas. It, today, it would, this would be worth billions upon billions right, of dollars. Right. Uh, so if you're talking treasure on Oak Island, then who had treasure? Where would treasure come from? Well, the Spanish are one possibility. The other thing we know about them is that they developed a very sophisticated convoy system for their treasure fleets. And they rode the Gulf Stream up to about Cape Hatteras and then where they would make their Atlantic crossing. But the other thing we know, anyone who lives along the Atlantic coast, we do have violent storms. So it is, it is certainly possible that, and we know that these fleets were struck at times by storms and that uh, the fleets were scattered, vessels were lost. Um, so it is, it's possible that, you know, Blankenship and O'Connor are the two that have kind of have the most cogent arguments for a Spanish connection. Um, but I think Darcy O'Connor is the one who comes forward with the most convincing scenario. And uh, it's one that accounts for quite a few elements of the mystery. And... Um, does correspond uh, with a, a, a lot of key pieces of, of, of evidence and uh, the carbon dating. You know, so his, his scenario basically is that uh, one of these vessels is seriously damaged and it's driven north and if they find refuge in Mahone Bay and they eventually arrive at Oak Island. So while there, they've got two goals. They have to construct a a cofferdam in order to undertake repairs to their ship. 
and on board because of all the mining activity that the Spanish are engaged in. In the New World, they have mining engineers and they've got, they probably have slave labor on board as well. And so the captain orders his mining engineers to oversee the construction of the money pit, the drains, the flood tunnels, in order to secure the treasure because he knows that while they're going to make repairs to his vessel, it's been weakened sufficiently that they will not make it across with the cargo, full cargo. So uh, they leave the treasure behind on the in the money pit and head back to Spain with the, with the notion that uh, they'll report to authorities, captain will get a new vessel, they will return to uh, Oak Island and reclaim the treasure. But on the way, O'Connor argues, the vessel is so weak that it doesn't make the crossing. The, 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 the vessel, the crew, they're all lost and, and go to the bottom of the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean. So as a result, there is no record of what happened on Oak Island. The, the treasure is sitting there booby-trapped and the Spanish are completely unaware of it. I mean, it's all plausible. Yeah. But it is all fiction. It is. <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no historical evidence to really back it up. In your book, you, you actually write, uh, O'Connor doesn't hesitate to admit that the scenario is speculative. But then yeah. you quote him. You say, but who is to say it couldn't have happened? Spanish treasure ships did disappear without a trace, and something was buried on Oak Island. And I hate to say to Mr. O'Connor here, you don't know something was buried on Oak right. Island. We never that's found true. anything buried on Oak Island. So That's, that's true. Um, you, you, you talk about Francis Drake a little bit, too. And I'm gonna play the uh, I'm gonna play the believer here for a second because I, I, I yes because I am in both camps I got to tell you it doesn't sound like I am but I am in both camps. You write at the end of the Francis Drake paragraph while the appeal of the Drake related scenario is obvious there is nothing in the documentary record to support it. And I guess my question is to you even as a historian we can admit though that the documentary evidence isn't complete, correct? When it comes yes. to this whole time frame yes. of Canadian history. Yes. So I don't think Drake's a possibility. <laughs> but, but the British were pretty good record keepers. Okay. And, uh, but you know, from this era, from that era. Right. Yeah. There, there's not going to be a, a full fledged ar uh, archival record. We, we we can't go without talking about pirates just because the pirate theory is such a so ingrained in the history of the Oak Island dig. Um, yeah. And so just a couple of questions about that. Was Nova Scotia ever like a pirate haven like the Caribbean or Madagascar or a place like that? I mean, were there really that many pirates in the waters off Nova Scotia? There were several pirates active in uh, Atlantic Canada including what's now uh, Newfoundland. Um, but to say that it was a major center of pirate activity, uh, no, it wasn't. Um, people like to claim that uh, Mahone Bay, you know, was named for a, 
a pirate, a well-known pirate barge called the Mahone. Uh, right, but that's right, probably right. not the case. Uh, it, um, I think the, th the thing about the pirates is, it was, you know, we have, when those boys discovered the money pit, they would have had no doubt whatsoever that they were looking at pirate treasure. Right. Right? Right, yeah. You know, it's it's really very much part of the uh, the, the mythology of the area and beyond. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I quote Ed, Edgar Allan Poe in Kid's Treasure in the book. I mean, I think up and down the Atlantic coast. Yes. Uh, everyone was, you know, at a, at a certain time was looking for Kid's Treasure. I mean, Kid was a rock star, right? I he mean, was. He, yeah. He really was. Um some of the early skeptics have got some great quotes on the pirates, so, uh, and I quote them in the book. One is from the, uh, the Liverpool transcript in uh, 1861. The writer uh, offers this opinion. Madness. To continue such work or to hope of any success talking about the dig underway. Kid was not so fond of labor as to dig 126 feet into the bowels of the earth to hide gold or anybody else in these late centuries of the world's history. Yeah. And then, you know, a few years later, another writer named John Bell, uh, no relation. Uh, that you know of. <laughs> that I know of. Probably in the old country. We were, right, right, correct. Were related. He writes, how these five or six, this is a pirate team, how these five or six persons, therefore, in the course of a few hours or even days, could manage to dig a pit and construct works underground, which strong gangs of laborers could not reopen or remove in several months, or what possible motive pirates or any other persons could have in burying treasures at such a depth or in such manner are questions which do not appear to have occurred to the Oak Island speculators. It seems to me, right, that um, that the pirate thing, the pirate theory is is probably the best example of this pop culture phenomenon. I mean, it's it's what people thought buried treasure was. It must have been pirates. That's right. But we didn't look very far. I mean, I know there are some pirate theorists who point towards really complicated works done in the Caribbean and yes. things like that. But there was a one-off things. I mean, yes. pi pirates, and I always say pirates didn't bury treasure. They spent it. Right. right. I mean, that's what made them pirates. They were yeah. they weren't looking to keep it for future generations. They weren't worried no. about their kids no. college fund or anything they like that. They were building a civilization. Right. No. Right. Um, uh, it, it does seem. But, but I want to ask you about what you refer to. You don't refer to it as in, in specifically like this, but as Gilbert Hedden's folly. Uh, which you mentioned a little bit about Gilbert Hedden and his following the uh, Captain Kid trail, I guess. This is one of the more fascinating pirate parts of the story, isn't it? It is. <laughs> uh, yeah, he kind of loses his way. Yeah. Uh, on the search for uh, 
a map. I mean, and you'll, we have a lot of kind of contested maps, you know, in, in, in the history of Oak Island. But uh, for him to travel as he did to England uh, and to um, meet with this authority on pirates and, and, and to talk about this strange map and then to discover that the author had um, fabricated the map, admitted to fabricating it, but as he talked to Hedden, he, he began to think, hmm, geez, maybe I was under some kind of psychic influence when I uh, drew that map. And, uh, wow. you know, someone was reaching out to me from the spirit world and, uh, and, and uh, guiding me to write a map that more or less corresponds with Oak Island. Um, yeah. It, There's it, where some skepticism would have been uh, useful and could have saved him a transatlantic uh, trip. Yes, and many, many years, too, yes. by the way. Now, before we get on to Terra Incognita quickly, um, there is a lot of early colonial British stuff. Louis Borg um, comes into yeah. uh, popularity. Is there anything there that you think is um, worth the show continuing or the researchers continuing to look a little deeper into? Is there... Well, I guess that, okay, when you come to Louisburg, the, uh, you know, I have a friend who's a, uh, a French historian, and in particular, he's a specialist on the military at Louisburg. This is, and he's a fan of the show. This is, this is the theory that he's keen on. And again, as was the case with the Spanish, if you're looking for treasure, in that early era, uh, who would have had treasure? I mean, from France to Louisbourg to finance the colony. Um, they would have been loaded with treasure. Uh, several were wrecked. Wrecks have been found. People have dived on the wrecks. There is treasure. Um, my friend argues that the French military engineers, if you, if you accept that the works on Oak Island are all man-made. His argument is that the French military engineers would have been capable of constructing the works. So, you know, it's, it's certainly worth considering the uh, French okay. connection. Okay. Uh, this is obviously somebody I'm going to need you to get me in touch with. But uh, anyway, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to Terra Incognita real quickly. Yes. Um, and I think that it is kind of interesting for the modern perspective of fans of the show that within Terra Incognito, the more fanciful theories, you put in two of what are probably the most popular current theories, even among authors, um, you know, many authors and researchers right now, and that is the Knights Templar yeah. and Francis Bacon. Yes. Um, you call it pseudo-history. So I want, you, you say the terror, the, these are theories based on what you call pseudo-history. Yeah. I wonder, um, do either of those two stand out as more pseudo than the other? 
Does that make sense? Like, like, do you feel one of those two? Because again, these are the two theories that people are really working on now, or really talking about yeah. now. Um, do either of those two make any more sense than the other? Or do you find them both to be because uh, let me put it this way: the Francis Bacon, the-, the Templar theory is pretty, pretty, pretty out there. Right? I mean, it's it's, it's pretty um, detailed. The Templars made their yeah. way to Portugal. Uh, there's a lot of we all know why. Then the ships left. We all know the ships left, and then maybe they went to. Um, Scotland and from there to the New World to hide the Ark of the Covenant. It answers a lot of questions. You know, what is motivating people to do this? Because there's a a religious motivation. And we all know that religious motivations throughout history can sometimes lead to crazy things like burying 160 foot deep. You know, (laughs) all right. There's a lot of stuff to that, right? The Francis Bacon theory is a little more nuanced. It's got some more ideas. There's, There's this, what I've quite frankly find quite bizarre connection to Shakespeare um, there uh, which I've read a lot about but I still find it a little strange um, but then again at the same time Francis Bacon was a pretty interesting guy who wrote a lot of weird stuff and yeah. and did a lot of strange things and had a lot of uh, what we would call them um, followers sycophants <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word but he had a lot of people who followed him. I wonder what you think of those two theories and if one kind of moves you more than the other or do you find them both to be still um, pseudo-history at best? <laughs> well, <clears throat> the bacon, bacon is – that's interesting. Um, as a former archivist, um, you know, I've got to be kind of dubious of any notion that the best way to preserve – documents would be to, I would advise any of your listeners who have any family archival material (laughs) of any value not to do that. That's a great little tip, folks. A great little tip for you. (laughs) So, yeah, it's hard to take that one seriously. Um, I guess I'm more interested in the Templar theory and its um, genealogy because you know all of that is happening here in Nova Scotia not all that far away from me and back in 81 I actually met Michael Bradley and uh, I have a friend named John Robert Colombo and he he describes he's done a lot of work on uh, relating to the history of Canadian science fiction or speculative fiction. But he's very keen on the paranormal and he's very keen on what he calls speculative nonfiction, which is related to science fiction in a way in that they're both kind of answering that what if question. Right. 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 And when I met Bradley, just very briefly, just I, just, just to just to so people know, Michael Bradley is the guy who wrote uh, "Holy Grail Across the Atlantic." He was one of the original um, what would we call uh, 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 theorists of the Templars coming to Canada. Correct? I'm saying, yeah, the right, no, right, I okay. would say that all of this stuff flows from Bradley. From Bradley, right? Yeah, and and um, what's 
fascinating now, and, and, and as you've noted, you go into bookstores today and there are volumes after volumes after volumes on the Knights Templar in Nova Scotia, in, in North America. It's like, it's now, I mean, Bradley engages in what I think he viewed himself initially as speculative nonfiction. Now this stuff is accepted as record, you know, legitimate history. Now, forget the pseudo part. Um, there are a lot of people, legitimate, substantiated history. Um, what's interesting, I think, about the genealogy of the Templar theory, because just dealing with that early period with, uh, with the Bradley and Joan Harris and uh, the Zeno documents and right. Henry Sinclair and... Um, you can tie a lot of it to that pop, popular nonfiction that we were talking about, those bestsellers. Right. Because a lot of it initially is spurred by that. You know, like the, the key kind of texts that are contributing to it would be the uh, um, Barry Fells, America, B.C. And... Um, are you even referring to things like Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and things? Holy, like, yeah, the Holy yeah, Book, okay. the Holy Grail, um, and also with Joan Harris, who kind of mashes up all this stuff right. before Bradley arrives on the scene and steers it towards the Templars. She's kind of drawing on Chariots of the Gods as well. That's another one. Yep, that's what I was yeah. thinking of. Yeah, and uh, so you can see that 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 impact. And actually, you can go back to the 16th century and look at the Zeno uh, documents, right? Which is kind of where it all begins. Correct. Yep. Um, it's, it's, uh, I, I mean, I find it fascinating just as intellectual history, if you like, just following the threads, how, all, how someone like Bradley put all this together, you know, drawing on Joan Harris's theories and Frederick Pohl's mm -hmm. book about Henry Sinclair but, you know, the time Bradley does that, he does it at the same time that the first book tying the Templars with the Grail appears, right? And he's read that, and uh, he's fascinated by that. He's fascinated by, by Barry Fell. He's already done a book on uh, the black discovery of, uh, North, of uh, North America, on African discovery in North America. Right, right. And... Uh, He's looking around for something new. Joan Harris writes to him in 81. And that, that's when I met him. And, you know, appropriately enough, uh, the, the, the one time I met uh, Michael, my wife and I were invited to our friends, the science fiction writers Spider Robinson and Jeannie Robinson's to their place for dinner with Michael Bradley and his wife. So the three couples were all together. It was a very entertaining evening. But while I listen to Spider and Michael, speculative writers. Right. One's writing fiction, the other one's writing what supposedly was nonfiction. <laughs> but they're both speculative. I like the way you say that. So what you're talking about is how these things sort of, it's almost like how rumor becomes a fact, right? I mean, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, exactly. And it's part of the... Um, 
what, what would we call sort of the mindset of even the treasure hunter that we're dealing with here. Before I go into that, though, I want to play the believer one more time here. Yeah. Um, we talked about the Vikings in the beginning of this conversation, and now we're talking about the Templars. Yeah. Now, at the beginning of the Vikings maybe coming to uh, the New World before Columbus, there were a lot of doubters in the, histori- in the historian community and a lot of people who questioned that. But that turned out to prove to be correct. You're right. uh, so isn't, is there a – do you think – now, there are a lot of what we would call historians or archaeologists who are working on evidence, however we see it. Um, but we'll call it evidence of yeah. the Templar presence in North America. So do you think there is a possibility that at some point that history might change and we might say, yeah, the Templars came here. We don't know what reason for yet, but um, is there any evidence that you're seeing now in the historical record that's coming in that makes you pause and say, well, maybe. Well, let's go back to the Norse just for a second. We do have you have you do have records in the form of the sagas that and, and the accuracy of the descriptions of landscape and indigenous peoples and, and other elements in those sagas definitely suggested that they were more than fiction. But we needed concrete proof and we got it in the form of an archaeological dig and concrete evidence that the sagas were real. Those are, that's actually a form of documentary record. Approximates that, right? We need, we need that concrete evidence. You know, but there's a case where there was a historical record, but whether or not it was legitimate was questioned by some. But it was long assumed that there was there was enough evidence to suggest that that's real, but we don't know how real it is and what what areas are we talking about that the Norse encountered exactly. Right, right. And then archaeologists are the ones that gave us the evidence that we needed, and uh, maybe archaeologists can can do the same here. But I, to my to my knowledge, that hasn't happened. Yeah, everything seems to be pretty. Um speculative even in the things they're finding even in the uh you know the carvings here and there it all seems to be uh dubious at least to some degree um i want to get into uh i just want to touch briefly on your last part which is what you call beyond this world and uh you put a great quote from marty lagina in there where he says first i didn't believe any of this stuff but I was not there 10 minutes when I heard a blood-curdling shriek, and I admit I was terrified. Right. Um, I, 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 there has been a lot of what we would call paranormal discussion, um, you know, with uh, Oak Island over the years. And it kind of reminds me of what we treasure hunter and the theorists uh, and how, I guess, open-minded they seem to be sometimes towards all sorts of possibilities when it comes to Oak Island. Yeah. And I wonder in your time um, doing this and researching this, what, what, what did you make of that? What do you make of the way the singular mindset that theorists and um, treasure hunters and even believers in this, in the sort of paranormal aspect of it have 
it, it's it's something I really can't wrap my mind around in my journey doing this. Like I, I I don't know how to relate to that idea that that idea that you know something we all don't know and that it is absolutely there. You know you know what I mean. Yeah. I'm I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that after reading all through all of this. Yeah, the it's certainly a strong current within you know the history of the the treasure hunt been you know lots of people coming forward with information that was gleaned in some sort of psychic uh session of one sort or another table wrapping or uh you know contact with the spirit world in other ways um i guess the one thing i would say there is that i, I point to two things one go back to demille and the notion that um, there, there's almost a religious faith that underlies the committed treasure hunters. Right. That, that you know that they are they are so committed that in, to any possible explanation or anything that might shed light on the treasure and provide you know a path to its discovery. The other thing, though, and one of the first things I read when I started my research was I read that Helen Creighton book on the folklore of Lunenburg County because I wanted to kind of understand how Oak Island fit into right. uh, that folklore because that's kind of how I saw it initially as part of that tradition. And, uh, you know, everything that... I describe in that uh, in that chapter the, all the experiences, the uncanny experiences people have had on the island. That kind of thing is evident throughout Lunenburg County. It's just very much part of the culture here, and and, and has been for a long time. I want to tell you. you I'm sorry. Finish. You, yeah, it's you know it's it's a county that was initially uh, settled. I mean, after the Mi'kmaq and the, and the French, by superstitious Germans. <laughs> I want to. I want to. Um, I don't want to keep you any longer. We've been talking for a long, long time here, and and I could do this all day, but um, and I won't make you do it all day with me. But I want to tell you uh, this one thing: M- most of the, almost every single book on Oak Island I've ever read, really was written. <sighs> I don't want to paint everybody with a big with one brush here, but right, so many books revolve around an idea, a conclusion that the author has about what could have happened, and by doing so, you get a you you get the idea that you're reading a book from a believer. But this book is the first one I've read where, from start to finish. This is somebody who doesn't believe anything. You're just telling us what you've learned. That's right. Like you're just telling us what you've learned about these theories and about all of this stuff. And and I think that angle, wow. I mean, we've been waiting for this for centuries, my friend. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. And I, I made a deliberate choice not to push any particular theory or to even point to which theory I might think is the most probable. I, I refrain from doing that because I'd rather people made up their own minds. 
you know, at the end of the book there, I do talk about some of the missing evidence. Yes. And uh, you can, you know. I don't want to give that away. I don't want to give too much of that away. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to give too much of that away. I don't want to give too much of your conclusion part of it away, especially the end when you're talking about skepticism. I want, I want readers to read that for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, good. Um, what I always ask people I'm interviewing before I let them go, is there anything I missed? Is there anything that we think that we should have covered um, that we didn't cover enough here? Uh, any part of the book you want to discuss or anything like that? I assume they get the book anywhere, Amazon or their local bookshops yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So, But is there anything I missed, anything I, that you want to make sure I, I we get in here? No, I, I think you did a thorough job. <laughs> and, uh, I enjoyed our conversation. I really appreciate your interest in the book. Thank you so much. Your kind comments.